Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 61, Buddhist Magic. Buddhist magic or the cities are mentioned in almost all of the Buddhist traditions. Listen in to hear Daniel Ingram, one of our favorite guests here on Buddhist Geeks, share his understanding of the magical powers, including their history, the actual usage of them, and the ethical issues involved in manipulating reality. Do you love this show? Support Falling Fruit and advertise your product or service here. For more details, visit fallingfruit.tv slash sponsorship. Yeah, so magic. We were talking about that the other day, and I was thinking that'd be a neat thing to go more in depth in and also also for people to hear because most people don't talk about this, even people I've known that I've practiced with. It's not a topic we often discuss. And I remember telling you I was really skeptical of you know the Buddhist magic at one point. We were talking, and you're like, well, uh, why? <laughs> and <laughs> and yep. uh, I had never really considered it that deeply. Um, I'd always kind of taken the you know the normal approach, which is like, oh yeah, this stuff is real, but it's not really uh, an aid to insight, which is why you'd practice to begin with. So don't really worry about it. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, that's the funny thing. So, you know, the the basic thing of magic is, you know, the powers or CDs or whatever you want to call them. Um, I guess we'll call it magic because we're Westerners, is that if you get your concentration strong enough, all kinds of interesting things can occur and then essentially at that point what you label magic and where you draw the line gets relatively arbitrary from a certain point of view anytime you're focusing intent to do anything you could call it magic but you know that's sort of a crowleyan definition almost that brings in everything from wiggling your finger to dreaming to talking to whatever it is Mm -hmm. and then if you want to get more formal of course we're talking about all the traditional cities that are listed in the standard texts and then all the other stuff so just to set up what we're talking about first of all but in terms of how it relates to insight that's an extremely interesting question right and the traditions clearly vary widely on what they think of that the zen people would say it's all moksha and illusion and and all of that stuff should be absolutely written off and that's the end of the story right and then you've got the vajrayana people who are sort of on the opposite extreme where they essentially use that realm and those kinds of abilities and concentration stuff as primary path Right. You know, with an insight bent on it, you know, where you visualize a deity and then take on the qualities of the deity and then merge with the deity and become the deity and, you know, enter the vast emptiness of the deity or whatever, you know, however you want to talk about, you know, tantric things. And then sort of you got traditions like the Theravada that are sort of in the middle to some degree. And, you know, there, some of them focus more on shamatha practices than others, like the Sri Lankans are more into shamatha stuff or, you know, Pauk Sidao is more into shamatha stuff. And then right. you've got the people who are on the sort of way more just do the insight practice and leave the rest alone, or at least they initially look like that, which is the Mahasi Sidao tradition. Right. Although if you talk to some of the more advanced monks in that tradition and some of the other practitioners, plenty of them clearly have trained in the powers, studied the powers uh, that kind of thing. So where the traditions, you know, stand on how it relates to insight are all over the place. Yeah. So and then there's the whole thing of, you know, if you get your concentration strong enough, you start to notice all kinds of things like the connections between phenomena. And if you start to actually even interact in a purely sort of magical way, like let's say you're trying to influence something or project out into something or whatever, you know, power you're trying to manifest or move some object, or bat around a candle flame, or visualize something, it's nearly impossible to get into that realm and not start noticing 
the interconnectedness of things. And by noticing the interconnectedness and interdependence of things, that in and of itself is insight because you're noticing cause and effect. You're noticing that the boundaries that arbitrarily seem to separate thought and body and world all from each other are obviously extremely arbitrary, flexible, illusory, um, not so straightforward, etc., and so even, you know, just doing pure powersy things, it's nearly impossible not to run into some of the classic insights that have to do with insight practice, mm-hmm. which is actually the whole reason I got, the whole way I got into meditation in the first place, and the whole, you know, crossing the arising and passing way was actually trying to have flying dreams. Right. And uh, I recently wrote about this on my website, but I was experimenting. I loved to have flying dreams when I was about 15 years old. And before I'd go to sleep, I would visualize, you know, these sort of giant billiard balls or planets or whatever in space and practice trying to fly around between them. Right. And in doing that, I noticed all the early classic insights of mind and body and cause and effect and three characteristics, and then shortly thereafter crossed the arising and passing away with essentially no formal meditation training at all. Right. And it was all by trying to pursue the powers. So even if you sort of sell people on the powers, by attempting to pursue the powers, you can actually run into insight territory. And then the insight territory, such as crossing the arising and passing away, it is the rare practitioner who will not have some kind of powery thing manifest, either seeing through their eyelids or, you know, noticing the chakras or energy system of their body or having strange, you know, visions or wild bright lights or powerful out-of-body experiences when they're dreaming or something like that. I mean, it's not so clear-cut. Well, where the insight stuff uh, begins and the uh, power stuff ends. That was a long rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's good. I mean, there's several things that I was thinking about when you were talking there. Uh, one is, I mean, we started talking about this together the other day, which is kind of sharing what sort of things have happened in our own practices with powers. And I was wondering, maybe if you could share from your personal experience, and I have very little to share, but I'd be happy to share that. And then also maybe some of the practitioners you've known, like what kinds of things do you see them manifesting either intentionally or unintentionally with regards to all this? And does that sound like an interesting path to go down? Um, yeah, the most, the unintentionally is probably the most controversial and dangerous subject. So I think I'm going to dodge that one completely in terms of, um, intentional stuff. Well, it's a vast topic. So let me just talk from some of my own personal experiences and we'll start with simple things and get into more esoteric things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, around the rising and passing away, I've had all kinds of complicated energetic, uh, phenomena, from being able to manipulate what appeared to be all the nadis and channels and energy centers in my body and tune those and adjust those because I could see and feel them, that sort of in the magical uh, realm of things, Mm -hmm. to out-of-body experiences, uh, traveling other realms. In those realms, essentially anything goes. So those are as magical as it gets. But then that sort of, you know, dodges the question, is that just all in your mind or is that, you know, the ordinary world if you're willing to? to, you know, posit an ordinary world, which most people habitually do. And then there's more interesting questions such as where do the does the sort of seemingly mental dream visualized realm and the theoretically material, in theory, non-visualized realm, where do those intersect? And that's usually what most people are most interested in, meaning can you actually manipulate this realm? And that sort of stuff is extremely hard to sort out. Mm. The problem is, well, there's sort of two ways to look at this, and I'll I'll give you examples of both. So the first is, I remember I was on a a retreat where I actually was specifically playing around with the powers. I was doing candle flame meditation to visualizations to very conscious attempts to take that very strong concentration that I developed on that retreat and use it for all kinds of purposes. And I remember I was sitting in the uh, 
main meditation hall, and this is at Bhavana Society and over a Christmas vacation with their 17-day retreats. And uh, we were all sitting there in the hall, and there were no windows in the hall, and they don't have a, a ventilation system in the hall because they've got these big drums of water that heat up and are heated by their wood stove at some distance, and, and those are what heat the meditation hall. And, and so there was no wind, nobody opened any doors, nobody moved. And I opened my eyes, and I started focusing on uh, the candle it was burning in front of uh, the Buddha statue. And I focused on it for, I don't know, three or four minutes and was doing concentration practice on that, using that to get into complex visual geometry and, and all kinds of things. And all of a sudden I thought, I wonder if I can move that candle flame. And it hadn't moved at all. It was just straight burning flame. And in the you know four or five minutes I'd been looking at it by that point. And so I just said, okay, let's see if we can do this. So I just uh, rose up to fourth jhana and then came back out of it and resolved in the standard fashion. This is all straight sort of a Sudhi Maga, how to do Buddhist magic one-on-one kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and resolved to move the candle flame. And about somewhere around five seconds later, there was this massive bolt of energy that shot down through my body, shot through under the floor of the meditation center. And, and I could both feel and see this, which is sort of interesting. And it shot up to the candle flame. And the, the candle flame uh, deviated, you know, wildly to one side and almost went out, actually, and then it's restabilized and stopped moving. And the trick is, though, at that point, you're in such an altered state, because now I'm obviously seeing energy shoot out across the floor and through my body and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. At that point, you're in such an altered state that it's hard to tell what's real and what's, you know, what's live and what's Memorex. Uh. So was the candle flame, you know, sort of existing for me then in a purely visualized realm that just happened to look like the room I was sitting in? Right. I have no idea. At that point, you know, or was I simply imagining with such powerful concentration? I mean, if I can see energy shooting through the floor, can I see the candle flame moving? Now, nobody else knew I was trying to move the candle flame. No one else would have known that I was trying to move the candle flame. No, I didn't ask anyone, did you see the candle flame move at about, you know, whatever time it was? Right. Because <laughs> everyone's sitting there with their eyes closed in theory. Right. So, you know, who knows? And so you get into those very complicated questions. And that's what I'll call sort of immediate magic. And that was actually a sort of immediate public magic. And immediate public magic is a very complicated thing. Mm. So, and whether or not it's verifiable, uh, essentially the going take on it is maybe and sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that appears to be scriptable. And what does that mean? I'm not sure. Does that mean it's just imagined? Does that mean it's reality? And then you get into the question of does it matter if it's sort of real or not, whatever that means, or is what's more important, what's causal, meaning is if you saw the candle flame move, well, that clearly had some effect on you. I mean, so it's real from a causal point of view, and that was your experience, and that will color color your view of the world and the way you interact with the world and the way you think about magic and the way you interact with candle flames in the future and all that kind of stuff. And you can extend that out to all the other branches of magic mm-hmm. or the powers. So that's sort of a, you know one sort of example. I've got other sort of examples of less immediate magic where I'm not actually trying to say, you know, do something that happens that second or close to it. So, for instance, I, I almost never use magic and why I don't is a very complex topic. But I was sitting in a room one day in medical school and it was a small room and, and there was a man giving a lecture on a whiteboard and he had this dry erase marker. And I was sitting at the front of the table about three feet from the guy and he had been lecturing for like 30 minutes and he had been keeping the top off the dry erase marker the entire time. And there was almost no air circulation in this little room uh, that 10 or 12 of us were in. And, and the fumes were just absolutely getting to me. So I sort of checked in with myself and thought, is this a reasonable use of magic? And I thought, yes. And I said, okay, let's try it. 
And so I sort of closed my eyes <laughs> for a few moments, rose up through the jhanas, came back down and said, could he please just put the top on the dry erase marker when he's not using it? And boom, all of a sudden he put the top on the dry erase marker and he didn't take the top off the marker again for the remaining 30 minutes. In fact, completely stopped writing on the board. So is that random chance? Is that skillful use of magic? Was that unethical because I manipulated someone to do something? Was that useful because it saved us all from the fumes of his terrible dry erase marker? I don't know. <laughs> but that's, but that's um, <laughs> sort of an example of sort of more traditional interact with the world kind of magic. Anyway, thoughts, questions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm wondering, well, one, you brought up an interesting thing of you don't generally use it, and it's a complex issue. I was wondering if I could push you on that and see why. <laughs> yeah. Is so, that because of things that have happened that have harmed people? or um, No. I, I have had so far no bad experiences with the thing. Obviously, bad experiences are where I knew, oh, yeah, I really messed up. I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have whatever because I'm very cautious. And I was actually just reading to Carol. We were talking about this question just about two or three nights ago, and I was reading... Uh, to Carol from a book from my childhood. And, of course, we're talking about the realm of magic, so myth has a lot of power in that realm, for better or for worse. And mm -hmm. I was reading to her from a book called The Wizard of Earthsea. If you haven't read it, it's a good read, and it reads actually very much like an insight map. Hmm. But one of the early characters in this book is a wizard named Ogian, a very powerful wizard who takes the young apprentice spellcaster under his wing and takes him off to live in his simple house. And, and during the whole time he's with him, he almost never uses any kind of magic of any kind whatsoever. And um, just, you know, if the rain's going to fall on him, it falls on him. If it's going to be cold, it's going to be cold. And he never tries to do anything to sort of alter the course of things in any obvious way. And for some reason, the aesthetics of that had a lot of resonant power with me. And I tr like to try to avoid doing formal magic. And I'm not necessarily sure that's a good idea. I've often thought, no, I should, I should do more of this stuff. I should play around with it more. I should do a more conscious study some of the aspects of the thing. And at points I have sort of along the way, but in terms of using it out in the world, I almost never do. And part of that is that whenever you go to interact with anything, usually it's something that you don't like. I mean, the vast majority of the time, there's some circumstance or person or situation that you don't like. Mm -hmm. And when you sort of reach out to connect with that, inherently, you're trying to connect it with you because all this is sort of based on a sense of interdependence and interconnection. And when you reach out your mind to try to connect to things it's not free it's like if you didn't want a big muddy rock to be in your driveway well you have to get your hands dirty and pick up the muddy rock and get mud on your hands you know from a certain point of view and that's sort of an, an analogy for magic you haven't always wanted to really closely connect with all the things i found unsavory mm. <laughs> but the ethics of magic are very complicated and i've been sort of hyper cautious on the ethics of the thing because most of the time you actually you're dealing with people sometimes you're dealing with situations most of the time you're dealing with people and it's people that are the primary cause of your happiness or dissatisfaction and, and how much do you really want to go manipulating them in ways that may be non-traditional and they might not be expecting and what might be the unintended consequences of that. While you could argue that we're all doing magic all the time by simply intending and interacting with the world, we're all trying to defend ourselves and, you know, acquire things for ourselves and find happiness and or, you know, cause misery or whatever it is we're trying to do. So, you know, how much additional power do you want to add to all that? I'm not sure. I always know the answer to that. So I've been on the cautious side of things. Mm. Yeah, and there's also this uh, this issue we were talking about of whether something is reproducible or not, too, because it sounds like when you're describing your experiences, it sounds like you're going into the fourth jhana, uh, coming out of it, making some sort of resolve, and then something does seem to reproducibly happen. But I was wondering, you had mentioned when we talked earlier that reproducibility is not always that clear cut with this kind of stuff. 
the world and its causality is obviously an incredibly complicated place. All the factors that bring to bear, you know, from the past and the present on each uh, situation that then cause the unfolding of what we call the future are incredibly complicated, you know, and only one small aspect of that is your intent. And so as you begin to realize if you play with this stuff enough, you can't always guarantee it will do what you want it to do. Now, sometimes when your concentration is outrageously strong, I remember on that same retreat that I was discussing where I was playing with the powers a lot, I got my concentration so that I could look at the candle flame and I could see the red dot and the red dot would get the, you know, spinning gold star and then that would turn into the black disc and then the black disc would get the complex gold things around it and then the gold things would expand out into space and get more complicated and become sort of, you know, hyper symmetric patterns and then that would, you know, coalesce into some sort of 3D flux lines of rainbow energy in space, you know, and then whatever I had set out to do at that beginning of the meditation or even sort of whatever came to my mind at that time, whether I wanted to those to coalesce into a white Vajrasattva and consort or whether I wanted them to coalesce into a black hole or whether I wanted them to coalesce into whatever it was, they would, you know, and the control was extremely good. And then after I came out of that, I could, you know, do all kinds of interesting things with, you know, great reproducibility, but they were all sort of things within the realm of visualization in my own sort of body-mind world. There was no one else there. I wasn't trying to manipulate complicated circumstance. It was all in the sort of visualized realm. Mm-hmm. And the control was extremely high. And But yet, I've definitely noticed that on the limited occasions where I've tried to do this in sort of A, less optimal circumstances when I'm, I'm not practicing all day long, and B, more complicated situations such as out in the real world and manipulating uh, circumstance, clearly the effects are not always what you intend, don't always happen with the timing you intend, Sometimes what you want will occur, um, but not in anything resembling the way <laughs> you wanted it to occur. Mm. Um, and sometimes nothing obvious happens at all. And it just you tried something and, and nothing came of it whatsoever that you can uh, determine. And so clearly the more complicated the circumstance, the less strong the concentration and uh, the less emotional energy you have invested in it. Emotional energy clearly has some sort of power the less likely anything is to work. And then you definitely get into questions of reproducibility of every time I want the candle flame to move, am I going to be able to make it move? Well, I don't think so. And yet the Buddha himself was constantly sort of shifting his take even on the powers. You know, at one point he would say, can the fruits of the homeless life, you know, he goes through this incredibly long description of all the jhanas and all the powers and all the realms and all these things. And then finally at the end says, oh, by the way, if you want to, you can use the strong concentration you've gained to, you know, turn it to the true nature of phenomena and the three characteristics and attain to enlightenment. You know, and that's like sort of almost seems like a tacked on paragraph after this long sort of advertising for why you should become a monk. You know, most of which is very much powers and jhana based. And then you've got, you know, the Buddha saying all the time, oh, I went up and I talked to these gods and I taught them the Dharma and I did whatever. And then you've got the Buddha using powers like there was this robber who was you know, coming after him right, and right. no matter how fast he came after the robber, he couldn't catch up with the Buddha. And he said, right. you know, Buddha stop. And he said, I have stopped. You know, these are the classic stories. <laughs> and, you know, and then we have the Buddha, you know, turn around in other texts and say, if we, you know, believe all the writers who wrote down these texts, oh, no, the, the powers are abhorrent. I despise them. They're a sidetrack, a dodge. You shouldn't go displaying them. You shouldn't go using them. You shouldn't go talking about them. Really, you should just focus on insight practice and clearly depending on the audience and the situation or the writer you know these paradigms are used and discarded depending on whether or not they seem to make sense at the time and be useful right and i think that's just practical yeah because i tend to like the pragmatic point of view and if you're you know 
out there and traveling out of body and weird things are happening to you to think not magically is not going to help you. And right. <laughs> if you're sitting in your physics class talking to your traditional physics professor, you know, who's very much a sort of rational materialist, talking about the powers is not going to help you. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? <laughs> totally, totally. There's a context appropriateness in, in which frameworks are used at which times. and uh, Right. Yeah, and it, it seems like in our current time, there are more contexts which we're embedded in, so it's even more relevant because there's so many different contexts kind of converging in our lives. Like you go to work and you're a doctor and you're clearly you're not going to start healing people with the powers. No, yeah. <laughs> or claiming I that don't, you can. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't talk about the powers at work. Right, exactly. <laughs> it wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't make any sense. It's not practical. Yeah. It's not going to help anything. Right. No question. Yeah, so here's a question. Here's I'm wondering if insight itself you said at the end of the fruits of the homeless life the buddha kind of tacked this on and you can use the concentration to gain insight i mean in a sense the way we're talking about power in this broader sense seems like attaining to insight different levels of insight is itself a kind of power well that's sort of what the buddha said he said the greatest power of all is the Ah. power to understand and teach the dharma and then he'll go on and say oh but it's really cool by the way if you can do all these other neat things and so simultaneously, we use these things as an advertising ploy. And I mean, even you and I talked about, ooh, we'll talk about the powers. That'll be cool. People always like the powers. Right. You know? <laughs> right, right. There's a lot and of people get into it. About, oh, yeah, people are into this stuff. And then you've got, you know, the flip side, which is, oh, they're dangerous. You can, you know, really become crazy. <laughs> they're just a side trap. You know, I've told the story before in my book. You know, I've got a good friend who has very strong concentration abilities. And he was on this retreat where he was trying to get the next path. And, you know, he was supposed to be doing insight practices and instead he kept having these conversations with some sort of a low level, you know, but very beautiful God who kept saying, oh, you're on track, you're doing a great job, your practice is really strong, keep up the good work. It's, you know, essentially all the things he wanted to hear. Uh Um, But clearly, if he was sort of buying into the content of the powers, um, he wasn't doing insight practices. Right. You know, so, you know, you can get into, you know, some very confused, delusional places if you take these things too seriously. Right. That seems like a great point where the, the magical powers seem mostly about the content of what's happening versus yep. somehow seeing the, uh, the impermanent, selfless nature of all that. That said, if one is inclined to insight and one has you know, gotten fascinated by the powers, the powers are interest, you know, infinitely fascinating, um, extremely compelling, and can cause people to give them so much attention that they much more naturally develop very con- strong concentration, particularly in people who are inclined to those sorts of things if that strong concentration is then turned to insight because the ordinary conventions and attachments and and sense of solidity and sense of reality can be so put behind us insight you know can happen from a certain point of view very very easily once one has the ability to see and concentrate on you know magical realm or aspect of things and essentially tantra uses that as its whole path they say once you visualize this deity merging with it you know shouldn't be any big deal and then you know all of a sudden boom you know you've got the no self door or whatever you know to fruition and you've got you know your first stage of enlightenment and so experiences of of the three characteristics in those realms may come easily and can actually be extremely profound and are not easily forgotten Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado.
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.